0: Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The official Brighton and Hove Albion podcast with mydieselclaim.com.
1: Hello, I'm Paul Hayward, and welcome to the official Brighton and Hove Albion podcast. The club's European adventure starts here, and the city couldn't be more excited. So, we're joined by two real Fleet Street heavyweights, um, great friends and colleagues. Jason Burt from the Daily Telegraph, Nick Harris from the Mail on Sunday. Let's start on the pitch with the football. Manchester City aside, uh, is there anyone playing better attacking football than Brighton under Roberto De Zerbi? Jason, you first.
2: No, is the answer. I think you're absolutely right to make that comparison. I think those two football teams are by far the best football teams in the Premier League. The, The quality of football they play... Uh, the quality of coaching, um, the standards that they're, they're setting are far in excess, I think. I mean, Arsenal will probably argue they should be in that conversation as well. But I would say in terms of technical football that's being played by those two sides, they are on, on a different level. And it's a huge compliment to Brighton. If you look at, obviously, the cost of the squad and, and the, the makeup of the, the club compared to the resources available to Manchester City, that they even, they even mention the same conversation as them. But yeah, what's been fascinating for me is the level that Robert, Roberto De has taken Brighton to in the last year because I was talking to Kieran McKenna about this at, at Ipswich Town and I've always had this kind of pet theory that you get some coaches who say, oh, I can only work with what I've got and that's why I play that style of football. I don't think if Roberto De Zervi was any, in charge of any club in the country, if you put him in charge of Everton right now, he'd still be playing the same sort of football he plays at Brighton. So I think it's such a good fit, and I think the players must be really enjoying the, the beautiful technical football they're playing. But you're absolutely right, I think those two clubs are head and shoulders above everyone else in terms of their, their actual football on the pitch. Any problem with that,
3: Nick, that diagnosis? No, I agree with it completely. I mean, I think Arsenal last season, at their best, were obviously very, very exciting... Um, Manchester City clearly head and shoulders above almost inevitably they're going to win the title again but yeah Brighton are so exciting Uh, Jason talked about cost Um, Manchester City's squad cost just over a billion dollars to assemble in transfer fees Brighton of course have spent some money I think all the players here combined maybe have cost 250 million or something but Saturday I was at Old Trafford what a win that was Uh, the starting lineup cost just under 17, won seven million pounds, and if Solly March had been fit, that would have been seven million pounds. Um, and um, Manchester United's starting lineup was three hundred and fifty million pounds. So, in terms of you know out outperforming bigger, richer rivals, they've done magnificently. You just look at the age profile. You know the young players like Evan Ferguson. I mean. You know, Brighton fans um, must just be, well, I know I've been speaking to staff members around here and fans this week, you know, they're in Dreamland. Um, I was speaking to the commercial director yesterday, who's a lifelong seagull, and I was saying, like, you know, if there's one pinch me moment in the last year or so, or in the journey to where we've got to this European week, what is it? And he said... It was Manchester City at home last season. He said, I was sitting, you know, watching that match with a big grin on my face, thinking we are going toe-to-toe with Manchester City. So absolutely. That win against Manchester United was the team's 12th against
1: a top six side inside 18 months I mean that's a very significant measure of success isn't it
2: Yeah I mean they, they are a top six side in the Premier League in terms of what they're doing um, and I think what was so interesting about last weekend was there was nobody surprised that they went there and won I think if anything the shock would have been if Manchester United won um, you know if you look at the two teams and what they're achieving and the football they're playing the direction of travel at the moment they're head and shoulders about Manchester United, uh, especially in the last last few few games. You can see that, that they, they, they are just playing a different level of football. Um, but as you say, they, they have gone into a period now where they are taking these teams on, as Nick says, toe-to-toe. You know, they beat Manchester City, they'll beat anyone, they can beat anyone. I think they have that confidence. But also what's interesting to me is that they've actually now got their depth of squad as well. It's not just about the first eleven anymore. they made a number of changes against uh, Manchester United and this, the team was not significantly weaker or anything. I think a, a club the size of Brighton being able to do that is, is quite significant, really. I think they've, they've got themselves in a situation where they've recruited so well, and they've developed players so well. Um, obviously people talk a lot about the, the sales of players and how they haven't actually diminished the squad by selling all these players. But obviously that's all the careful planning and recruitment process, but also the, the continuing strength in depth they're now achieving. And you can see that with the changes they can make, which makes me quite confident that they'll do quite well in Europe. I think they'll manage that European campaign quite well, where some clubs in the past have gone into Europe for the first time, have struggled. They've found it a real difficult to sort of manage that with the squad, with the, the different rhythm of games. But I think with Brighton, they're so well set up they can make those changes that wouldn't affect them too badly.
1: And Nick, the I mean, from a reporter's perspective, is it is it refreshing to see this story to to cover this story? It's an outlier story, really, isn't it? And I wonder how much it obviously appeals to Brighton and her Albion fans, but you can sell this story to all football fans in a way, can't you? Because they're all fascinated
3: by it. Absolutely, it's it's. It's a shining example of a really well-run club from top to bottom. And so many football fans can look at what's happening at their football club and think that their club is a madhouse, whether they're a Chelsea fan or at the moment <laughs> if you're an Everton fan. In the past, if you've been a Leeds fan. These these clown car clubs, Manchester United fans, you know, it's more than 10 years now since they've got a title. So you've got a fantastically well-run club. I think that has been an unfolding narrative now for A couple of years, you know, since they got back into the Premier League six years ago or whatever. But now, astonishingly, Roberto de Zerbi has come into the picture and taken them another level from where Graham Potter had already been really impressive. And when you're looking at the fact that they are, you know, selling Caicedo for £115 million, I think, I can't remember, I've lost count of how much money Chelsea have spent to this football club buying players and a manager and whatever. So yes, there's that part of it, that it's exciting, young, talented squad playing exciting football. But also, you know, when we go back to stories that grab the attention, not just of the domestic audience, but globally, of course, the 15-16 season, Leicester, somebody, you know, the miracle of Leicester, 5,000 to 1 to win the title, you know, and they won it. And I think football fans of most clubs who generally aren't going to win trophies, any time, let alone regularly will look to a club that's doing things the right way and you can say you can kind of give you hope that it can be done the right way and it's exciting as well so absolutely it's a great story. And in our business
1: Josie, you, uh, you spend a lot of time tracking managers and yeah. studying them and trying to pick up nuances and clues and we're constantly psychoanalyzing managers aren't we for signs of, of stress and trying to spot their strengths as well mostly. De is a fascinating case study there isn't he because uh, not many people knew that much about him if they're honest before he came here but he's been a he's been a case study hasn't he in what modern management and modern football coaching is really all about
2: yeah, I mean, I remember hearing on the radio uh, when he when he arrived at Brighton that what what had he done to deserve this job? And my head was shaking basically because if you track his career, he's got a, a good body of work behind him. Uh, obviously, Shakhtar done it, it's not re- so recently, um, and as you say, you know, I think nowadays you're finding clubs like Brighton are looking at the recruitment of managers and the way they look, look at the recruitment of players and they're looking at profiling their managers and the way they profile their players. I think you still find some clubs will, I mean, I, I despair on occasions when I, I look at the shortlist that, that clubs compile and it's five different types of manager who you know, the, who may be available and they'll think, well, well, we'll take him or him or him or him. And they want that manager to come in and, and create the culture at a football club or, or create the environment for them to succeed. A well-run club, Looks at it completely differently. You know, they they know the profile of manager they want, uh, who'll progress them, who'll take them to the next level, and then they work from backwards from there, see who's available, obviously. And usually they have they have files and they have databases and they have their, their they have all their sort of analysis done whether or not he will fit in terms of personality. And Roberto Miseri ticked all those boxes for Brighton. I I'm not being biased after the event. I, I thought straight away. That's a really smart signing. It was opportunistic as well because he was available, and you know he was a high-caliber manager available. It was an, an, unusual at that time because obviously circumstance why he was available he wanted to come to the Premier League. So again, uh, that was another thing. But I, th- I think they they, they they acted very quickly, very decisively, and it was a, and actually what was interesting in the whole appointment was how smooth it all was. We didn't have this chaotic two or three weeks you get at some clubs. Oh, it could be him, it could be him, it could be him. It was suddenly done and Roberto De Zerbi was in the door and, and you know, they, they transitioned so well from Graham Potter to Roberto De Zerbi because you look at Graham Potter going and you think, well, that could have been a real crisis point for, for Brighton, but it wasn't at all, actually. They seamlessly moved on and that is the biggest object lesson of all, I think, in the way they run themselves, both in terms of manager but also in terms of players. You know, they've got those players two years down the line now who they know are going to be in first team. You know, it's incredible in terms of level of planning.
1: Yeah, you're a numbers man, Nick, and um, every Premier League club has an army of, of data crunchers and, you know, algorithm players um, sifting through information from all levels of world football. But obviously, nobody's doing it like Brighton. Evan Ferguson, Mitoma, McAllister, Casado, Trossard, I could go on and on. Do you think Do you think this is eating away at the other Premier League clubs a bit now? And,
3: and what do they make of this this formula that Brighton have, have developed? Well, first of all, you know, it's important to acknowledge the the role of data, but just not any data, but Tony Bloom's Star Lizard data. I mean, the guy is a genius. He's made a lot of money with statistics and, and Star St- Brighton and Hove Albion Football Club are a client of Star Lizard. If you look at the accounts, I think it was 21 22 season, um, there's a transaction for £3 million that, you know, was paid to Star Lizard, by Brighton. That's for this magic data, which, which, It's the secret source. It's the stuff that the other clubs haven't got. Use a comparison with the club that I unfortunately support, Southampton. They they had a very data-driven system and a system called the Black Box. We're talking about eight, nine years ago when they were hiring Sadio Mane and Virgil van Dijk and all these players. And it got to a point where the data either got old or, you know, it just stopped working. What... Brighton have is something special, and they won't talk, tell you how, you know, they're not going to explain to me and Jason today right, unfortunately. exactly. You can ask and ask and ask, and they're going to say no because it's proprietorial. And, and, and it's and it's really sophisticated stuff. So that's key to it, but it's not the only part of it. There's definite there's a human side to it, the old-fashioned scouting. There's all sorts of other more conventional data. But the data is at the heart of it, and 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 that's what has been a really key, important part of recruitment. And they're not going to be telling anyone else how to do it because that's a significant. But, but there's
2: also, following on from that, I was talking to somebody at the FA about this during the summer. There's also just a very smartness around it in terms of the personal side of it, because I was when Nick, 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 and, I, Nick and I were talking about it before, no club exploits the South American market as well as Brighton in the Premier League. And the, the FA were saying to me. Brighton are just so good at it, you know. It's so good at getting these players in and using the system to their advantage. Other clubs just don't seem to realise how to use the system as well as Brighton. So that's not that's that's a that's, that's kind of been smart, and that's nothing to do with data. That's actually just been smart and thinking that's that's an area of a, the world we can go in, you know, post Brexit with all the, the GBE exemptions and so on. We can look at that market and think there's there there players there that we can go for that we can get in through the door. Other clubs just don't seem to have done that, and it's, it's remarkable really. I mean, the, the FA guy was saying to me, I just don't know why nobody else has caught to this I mean because the players are there but nobody else has taken advantage of the system the way that Brighton are
3: but it is it's definitely holistic it is the data it's the scouting. Exactly. it's it's all of it but the, de- the data of course is important but so is the fact that the background checks you know I'm, I'm led to believe that there have been players who've been considered you know for Brighton in terms of their analytics look great mm. he'll be brilliant and they've done some checks and some an alarm bell's gone off and they've thought well that's that player's not for us I mean the next bit might have to be edited out, but I, I'm, t- I'm told that there's a policy at the club. There's a no d- policy basically is the shorthand for somebody's got to fit the values of the club as well it's got to be about are they, a, are they a good person are they going to fit into this squad without disrupting it they don't want superstars they want good footballers who are also good people who buy into the ethos so lots of
2: clubs talk about having a similar policy but they don't implement it yeah. so what, what what Brighton do is they will back that up with evidence it's not just a kind of gut feeling or a we say we do that but actually well we don't because he's actually quite a good player and we can get that deal done they will have a very rigid that's our approach we're not bending we're not deviating from that because it will ultimately damage the squad if we do so we were brave enough to walk away from a deal because we're not going to do it because of those criteria aren't being aren't being met
0: sign up and join millions of sports fans putting their trust in my diesel claim proud sponsors of the official brighton and hove albion podcast
1: A lot of football journalism now is about um, sort of inquests and post-mortems and, and, and analyses of what went wrong, you know, what, what went wrong at this club, what went wrong at that club. And a basic business principle, it seems to me, is to get the right people in the right positions, uh, to appoint the right people, and form the right management team. And so what you get at Brighton is is uh, the right people in the right positions, and you get consistency of decision-making. And I sometimes wonder why you don't see that more often at other clubs, why it seems so difficult for clubs just to simply get their, their structures right.
2: Yeah, I think I think a lot of clubs live hand to mouth, and I think they think, think in terms of short-term success and they're desperate for it, and they'll just they'll just the corners and they'll spend the money and they'll do that especially some of the bigger clubs because they've got the money I think sometimes in the Premier League there is so much money that's made some clubs lazy in the recruitment and then you almost get a situation where some big clubs will say well I can't sign Moises Casado for three and a half million quid because the fans have never heard of him and they'll think well, why are we signing a player for three and a half million quid well actually because he's a good player and maybe that's why you should back yourself a bit more in terms of your recruitment so an ele- ele- element of that I think as well and I think what Brighton do very very well across the board from the playing staff to, to all the staff here, is they have succession planning. So, for example, Dan Ashworth goes, it's not a crisis. David Weir is there. You know, his replacement's already in situ. And I think you see a lot of that across the board. And again, in any business, never mind football, that is, that is, that is absolutely vital if you have that sort of continuity of succession planning so that people are already in the building. And it also encourages those people to stay because they know the opportunity will arise for them to actually get, get the job they want to get eventually. So you've got a better atmosphere around the whole place. You know, it's not just about that. But I think really, you know, saying all of this it does help with a club the size of Brighton you know I think there is an advantage there because you know if you are I don't know Manchester United the fans want success straight away whereas I think with Brighton on a journey and the fans accept the fact that it might take a little bit of time and this is a golden period for Brighton it's never been like this before this is amazing but actually you know I think they've had the opportunity because they're a slightly smaller club to be a bit more nimble but also you know they, they have the, they've they've almost like done a lot of it under the radar obviously now we're all aware of it but they've done a lot of it under the radar a lot of the preparations happened not overnight, but taking them a long time to do that. And, you know, it also helps. You've got a visionary owner like Tony Bloom, who's ahead of the curve in everything he's done, really. Obviously, from, we've seen that throughout his whole business career and obviously with, it, with the stats-based stuff he does as well. So, I mean, it's a real sort of, you know, win-win situation for them.
1: Uh, and Nick, again, something you've written a lot about is ownership models. So, we, you know, when we write about the Premier League now, we're writing about nation states, private equity, leveraged buyouts, individual tycoons, oligarchs. So, you know, the the Brighton model does stand as an outlier in that. And it's a difficult question to answer, but could the pendulum ever swing back round to this type of football ownership at top level or has that bird already flown?
3: I think, yeah, I think that that seagull has has flown (laughs) except at Brighton, Um, you know, a local who happens to be very, very bright and therefore has made himself a lot of money which he's pumped into this football club that local owner who's wealthy enough to fund football at this level is going to be very very few and far between i mean like you said we're talking about nation states and 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 you know the saudis at newcastle and uh, you know manchester city which of course is a personal project of shake mansor and not, not at all a state run club but it is backed by the apparatus of state that's going to happen more and more you've got american carpetbaggers at manchester united americans at liverpool so now i don't see it this, this, I just don't see this going back to that. We, I did a, a big sort of project last year with trying to um, we we interviewed interviewed did a survey sorry with about fifteen thousand Premier League fans, um, asking them what their perception do you think you've got a good owner at your football club and where else do you think are the best owners within the division and Brighton were right up there at the to, at the top of of, of, of um, the perceptions of other fans of other clubs. And, and it was surprising, actually, quite a lot of fans. You know, Liverpool fans generally thought they had good owners, and a majority of the clubs actually felt that their own owners were quite good. Delia at Norwich, for example, the fans like us. So there are good owners, and she's obviously another local person who's done well. And at the bottom were, were you know, in the perceptions of their own club were the Glazers at Manchester United. They had something like a 4% approval rating, whereas the approval rating of Tony Bloom at, at Brighton was like 99 point recurring <laughs> nines, which is not surprising. <laughs> But I think, you know, the way that a club ends up performing on and off the pitch ultimately will be driven by a good owner. I think, it's, I think really it's, it's that fundamental. If you've got a good owner, and we can define good in various ways, but, but yeah, long-termism calm making good appointments at executive levels being sensible with the budgets i think good ownership has its own rewards Mm -hmm. i think if you if you could sort of think of one single thing to improve any given football club or the industry would be to i don't know get mechanisms to try and encourage good owners but it's how can you do that you can't i don't see legislatively how you can force people to have good and it's too late it's gone i mean this is now a a game of petrostates and, and and billionaires and oligarchs and unfortunately... Um, and that's why this story as well is a good story. But,
2: but, yeah, but I think also there is scope for, for the club to try and, you know, do, do things their own way in the way that Brighton have done. It has to be, as we've already touched on this, you know it's not a question of sort of giving up because these other guys have got all this backing behind them you you can be almost a sort of guerrilla approach and sort of getting a little bit beneath the wire, and we've seen that obviously Brentford have been doing it as well to be fair to them so there are are examples of those those clubs who can break into that top 10 top 6 the the problem is can they break into that top 4 and that's the big leap isn't it you know I'm Brentford and um, Brighton might well do it this year they might well do it but <clears throat> will they sustain it because you know you've got all these mass forces behind you <laughs> who will just rearm basically so how can how can you take them on ultimately over a period of time you might do it for one year can you do it for you know several years it's hard to say but I think there is a real chance to to sort of impact upon them because we are seeing some of those clubs being quite badly run aren't we I mean so we yeah. were talking about Chelsea and, and 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 Manchester United and 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 up until this season, Tottenham Hotspur, where you think, well, these guys, guys are massively underperforming. You know, they, they, they are being shown up here. You know, Because I think, going back to my point before, I think the money's made them a little bit lazy. It really has. You know, it's made them short-termism, it's made them overspend, it's made them think, oh, we've got the money, it doesn't matter, we'll catch up. And that's, that's why Leicester, Leicester won the league, because everyone thought, oh, we'll reel them in. And it just didn't happen, did it? But unfortunately for Leicester, they managed to sustain it. I look at the model here and it looks more sustainable to me than what was happening at Leicester. I don't know if you agree with that.
1: Well, and of course, the other factor is that it's, it, it's entertaining, isn't it? it? It provides entertainment. Neutrals will watch Brighton and Herve Albion to be entertained, won't they? Because they know what they're going to yeah. get. And, I, and I, wonder, I wonder, just going back to De Zerby whether lot, you whether know, lots of managers are called innovators and disruptors and people say they've bought their own style of play and they've reinvented the game. It's actually not very often true. But when you watch um, De Zerby's teams... Uh, you get this feeling, don't you, that, that something new is happening. That, that no, I've never seen a team play that way before, move the ball that way before.
2: No, and I, I was, we were talking about this before, and one of the things I've always noticed with, with under the Zerbi is the speed of movement, actually, the, how quickly they're moving the ball. I've seen lots of teams play it out from the back, um, but not with that speed and that zip and that bravery. Um, you know, I was watching Manchester United try and do it the other day, and it was slow, 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 slow. Brighton, they're pinging the ball into each other. They're playing with a bravery that you know is, is very rare in, in football. And that even the game against um, West Ham when when they lost, I was watching the thing, game thinking three one down, they could still get back into this. There's five minutes to go, and they created chances. I mean, everyone talks about what an amazing performance it was by West Ham. I actually thought they were a bit lucky. Really, I thought they were a bit lucky. They lucked out. Really, I think 99 times out of 100, Brighton win that game. You know, and that's because they had the bravery still to play, you know, and they they carried on playing. Some teams would have gone back into the shells, changed their style of play, gone a bit longer, done something different. We've even seen that sometimes from Manchester City. We don't really see that for Brighton. They just play. They carry on playing. They have that belief in themselves and their ability. And you look at players like Lewis Dunk, you know, who is a fine passer of the ball. Now, people wouldn't have said that about him a couple of years ago, you know. And it goes back to a point that I I, I always bang on about. I think I'm already, already mentioned it coaches can develop players. You know, They all say, oh, well, can I can only work with what I've got. I just don't believe it. I think coaches coach. Good coaches coach players. And most players wanna play good football. We are talking to Solly Marsh a few weeks ago, and he said one of the best things about playing for Brighton is they enjoy it. I find it really enjoyable to play this style of football. And I'm sure every footballer thinks that. They want to play brave, attacking football progressive football and they see the results here and you know it's a template for style in terms of modern day football that other teams should really I bang on about it all the time other teams should be looking at it thinking if I was a player at, I don't know it's Everton I'd be thinking why aren't we playing like that why aren't we being coached like that why aren't we getting the chance to play like that and I'd be getting so frustrated you know and I think I think that's 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 a real testament to what Deserby's done following on from worker work of Graham Potter
3: when you're talking about like Truly epoch defining coaches, whether it's Reinhard Michael or, or Johan Cruyff, it, clearly in the modern age, you've got Pep Guardiola, somebody who, who really has, you know, got teams playing in ways they never have, whether it's using defenders in midfield or improving players beyond it. The fact that we are sitting here putting Dzerbi. In that conversation, even is telling you what he's doing, but absolutely what Jason said—the style of play, his coaching, what he's done here—he's been here a year. This week, I think it was a year yesterday. Mm. You know, uh, to see the transformation of an already good team to to that other level—it uh, is really good to watch. It's really refreshing, and the fact that he's even in the same conversation as Guardiola for being. A- Properly innovative.
2: Pep's a very good judge, judge of coaches. You know, he, he marked out Graham Potter a while ago, and people say, "Oh, it's just because you beat Brighton." Because, no, he, he knows what he's talking about, and, and he's a little bit not fearful, but he's very respectful of De Zerbe. He knows what Roberto De Zerbi can do, what his team. And I think he doesn't relish playing Brighton, even though they go toe to toe with each other. I think it's a difficult game for him, and you know, and that's the ultimate compliment. How many how many teams give give Man City a difficult game? They might try and change their tactics, play a lower block, defend more, so on and so forth. But actually, Bright and give them a game. And, you know, it's a real game of football. And I think, you know, you look at those two coaches and, you know, they are, as we've already talked about, you know, absolutely at the top in terms of the Premier League at the moment.
1: So finally, I mean, this is going to be a very tough season. Um, An extra competition added Thursday-Sunday games. We all know how difficult that is. Your first season in Europe, it can be disorientating. But given the strength of the squad, and Tony Bloom mentioned this the other day, he thinks it's the strongest squad that the club's ever had, despite the sales of McAllister and Cosado. It's not unrealistic for you both to see um, Brighton in a Champions League spot next year, potentially?
2: I think it's going to be hard. Top four is going to be very, very hard. Top six, I think, yeah, definitely. I I would be surprised if there weren't top six. I think top four could could be tough, but we're seeing, obviously, again, you know, underperformance already from those teams you'd expect up there. So Brighton can definitely exploit that. but absolutely I, I I don't fear for them at all because I said before, you know, sometimes when teams go into Europe, especially in the first campaign, have ever done it, it, can be a bit of a shock to the system. They do struggle. That some for some bizarre reason that Thursday, Sunday rhythm seems to disrupt them. I don't think that'll happen with Brighton. Um the Zerbi's played in these competitions before, he knows the score. But he's got that strength and depth where he can rotate. Um so and I think they've got that confidence to know that they can go deep into the European competition. It's not they're not just there for the for the ride, as it were. They're there to actually probably go quite deep into it and do well. And yeah, I mean To answer your question, it wouldn't surprise me if they got very, very close to being in the Champions League, being a top four team. I just wonder whether or not ultimately, you know, the size of some of these squads and the the depth that they've got might just get them over the line against Brighton. But I think it'll be close. I think they're definitely in that conversation.
1: Jason Burt, Nick Harris, thank you for your wisdom and your time and uh, enjoy the rest of the season. Thanks for having us. That's all, folks, and thanks for listening to the official Brighton and Hove Albion podcast, which has been produced in an historic week for the club. Do you agree with that analysis? Or were they talking? Email us at podcast at BrightonandHovealbion.com.
0: The official Brighton and Hove Albion podcast. This podcast is a work Sport production for Brighton and Hove Albion.